and welcome back to the World of Shops podcast, the official podcast of the Save Our Seas Foundation. As the name suggests, this is a show all about sharks, rays and the oceans. I'm your host Isla, a scientist, diver and all-round shark enthusiast and every episode I have the very nice job of sitting down with experts in shark science and conservation to go on a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. This week we are diving into the chilly waters of my home country, Scotland, to meet an iconic cold water species, the spur dog. Also known as a spiny dogfish, a spur dog is a relatively small but highly mobile species of shark that is found in temperate seas across the globe and is common all around the British Isles. But while they might be small and relatively common, they are a fascinating species, not least because they are one of the few venomous species of shark. Yep, they are named after the two spines that you can find at the base of the dorsal fin, which actually secretes a venomous substance when threatened that causes a mild yet uncomfortable reaction in humans. Mind you, this only happens if you grab onto the shark, which I hope none of you would do. And also, they are typically a deep water species, only coming up into shallower waters to breed and feed. They also have a habit of aggregating in large numbers, and this is something that my guest today is very interested in. PhD researcher and Save Our Seas project leader, Fenella Wood, is a marine biologist and molecular biologist who is trying to understand why these groups form. And more specifically, she is using population genetics to figure out if the individuals in these aggregations are related. I'll let her explain why this is important and what it could mean, but this is just a fascinating episode about the curious world of the spur dog and a window into the equally fascinating world of shark genetics. It is just mind-boggling the amount of stuff that we can find out from a shark's DNA and I loved learning from Fenella all about it. We also get into her career, she's looked at all kinds of things from diet studies to eDNA, she'll explain what that is in the episode, and now population genetics and has worked with many different species from seabirds to angel sharks to now flappiscate, another very cool cold water species, and of course the spur dog. She's also worked at the Bimini Field Station in the Bahamas and on some really interesting projects. And I just think her research is so incredibly interesting and cool. And I think you will too. In this episode, we talk about Fenella's journey to becoming a molecular biologist and geneticist, get stuck into some spur dog facts and learn what might be behind those aggregations. And we learn about concepts like relatedness and connectivity and why these are important to understand from a conservation perspective. So get your cold water gear together and get ready to head to Scotland. Let's dive into our episode. Hello, Fenella Wood, and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. No, it's absolutely our pleasure. I'm very excited today because we're going to be talking about one of my favourite species of shark, one which 
I've dived with a couple of times actually. Normally the sharks that we talk about on this podcast, I've not dived with or I've not seen that much in real life. The spur dog I am very familiar with. So I am so excited for this episode. And we're going to get into some some cool genetics as well. Some cool sort of molecular biology, which is, as we've just discussed, a field that I'm pretty much coming into brand new when I did marine science at university. It was quite a long time ago. So I'm very much looking forward to getting into that. Um, But before we do, we like to get to know you a little bit. Familiar listeners will know we like to start the podcast and end the podcast with the same question to every guest. Um, And our first question is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? Mm. So that's quite a tough one because um, I've been quite lucky and I love being in the water. So I've had some really um, amazing experiences. Um, but one that really jumped out to me um, and it's not particularly actually a shark experience, but I'm slightly shark adjacent. Um, that's fine, is, um, that's fine. Um, <laughs> I used to work in the Bahamas and one of the things that we used to do was setting long lines to catch sharks. Um, and these would be the ones that you had to check every few couple of hours because we didn't want sharks staying, um, being hooked up for very long. So it meant that we went out all day and all night going out to check them. And I remember I'd only just kind of started and we went out in the middle of the night and it was pitch black. And I just remember turning around and the whole wake behind the boat was all entirely lit up because of all the bioluminescence <sighs> in the water. And it was just the most stunning thing to see. And it was quite, you know, it wasn't unusual that that happened. Like I got to experience it quite a lot. But I just remember being for kind of one of the first times I'd ever seen bioluminescence in the water and actually to like just so much of it. And yeah, that was really, really cool. And it was a proper pinch me moment that I was like, wow, this is this is cool. This is what I get get to do every day. Um, so that one really kind of stood out for me. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a good day. Yeah, it's so cool. Bioluminescence is just awesome like there isn't any other way to describe it yeah we had that um especially when you're on a boat and the boat's moving and you kind of see it in these like waves across the uh, on the side of the bow of the boat as well it kind of feels like you're in some sort of like weird sci-fi film it's so magical yeah yeah absolutely if it's yeah it feels like kind of floating it's like like some kind of animated thing of how how it would all be it's it's really cool yeah like on a spaceship but if we can kind of like go back to your childhood and growing up um i sort of wanted to explore sort of where your connection to the ocean came from and how how you got to study marine science absolutely so um just as far as i remember um I've just always loved the water. I've always felt super comfortable in the water. I've always been really interested in the ocean, but I was also growing up just super obsessed with animals as well. Um, I had pets growing up and they were just my world and everything about animals, um, wildlife, I just was super interested in. But when I was growing up, um, this is quite different to what any of my family members do or anything that I knew of anyone doing when I was growing up so everyone when I was little kind of assumed I'd be a vet because I just loved animals (laughs) um and that was (laughs) what everybody it was like oh you like animals yeah you'll be a vet there's no other options working (laughs) with with animals but I'm actually a bit squeamish and I don't really actually like kind of blood and guts and things so I knew that I would never make it as a vet um (laughs) 
you know as a small child I was like I don't think it's for me um but I actually I think I was about 10 and I went to an aquarium and I ended up speaking to a member of staff and they explained to me that they were a marine biologist and I was like wow that's a thing like I had absolutely no idea I didn't even know like uh, that a biologist was a, a thing right and um so yeah from literally that that day I was like I'm going to be a marine biologist <laughs> um which was a little <laughs> bit ridiculous because I was a child didn't probably still didn't understand what it meant but I was like I'm going to do this but when I was younger I was um I grew up in the Midlands in England so I was a bit far from the sea I used to go to the sea a lot because my family lived in South Wales but um, my main way of accessing kind of animals and my interest in that area was mainly through documentaries. Um, and I particularly remember watching a documentary when I was a teenager about the shark fin trade. And I oh, was wow. just like, yeah, I didn't really know, you know, this completely opened my eyes. And at the time, I don't think I really knew much about sharks either. Um, and I, I remember watching it and I was like, oh my God, everyone hates these animals. Like it, I felt like the perception of sharks, everyone hated them. And I was like, but they're really, really cool. And then I was learning how endangered a lot of them were and the shark fin trade issues. And I just immediately was like, wow, these are some of my new favorite animals. And I felt like I really had to fight their corner um, to a lot of people because I felt that no one liked them. So I was already super obsessed with everything ocean related everything animals and luckily science was my favorite subject at school as well so it kind of all fit together um and yeah getting to work with sharks down the line was actually just a bonus the fact that I was always so interested in them growing up um that it kind of yeah it kind of has all, all, all fallen into place um but when I went to university I didn't actually do marine biology I did zoology um so not too far off but it was much more terrestrial based um, but I still always knew that I wanted to do, um, yeah, work in the marine environment. So I kept trying to, to do extra things and tailor it towards, uh, marine biology where I could. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had very similar, uh, experiences then. Um, cause I had the same thing. Everyone assumed I was going to be a vet or work in a zoo, either one. Um, and then I didn't actually find out marine science was a thing until I was 17. And I was just about applying through UCAS. And my biology teacher was like, you look like you're pretty interested in, you know, coastal wildlife and the sea and stuff. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, don't want to work in an aquarium. And he was like, well, there is this this thing called marine science. And it was just like, ah, <laughs> amazing. Light bulb moment. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And then the rest was history. But, um, but yeah, and the, the same thing with sharks too, I think. My family were a bit worried about my reaction to to like jaws and stuff because I was just like, this is the coolest animal I've ever seen. Um, I think I'm maybe a couple of years older than you because at the time there wasn't really any discussion around sort of the shark fin trade or, you know, no documentaries about that. There were documentaries about shark attacks and that was pretty much it. So, so yeah, awesome. And then that led you like all the way onto the path, like into your PhD. But you mentioned the Bahamas earlier. Um, and I can't let you get away without talking about the legendary Bimini Biological Field Station where you did a placement. Um, and I was just wondering, like, how did that come about? Um, and then, you know, how did that influence sort of where you wanted to go in your scientific career? Yeah, I was really, really fortunate um, that I got to spend some time at the Bimini Shark Lab. So how this came about was 
a little bit to do with when I chose to go to university. So I mentioned that I did zoology instead of marine biology. And I did this solely because that degree program allowed you to do a placement year. And at the time when I applied to university, it wasn't that common. There were a few places that did it and they didn't offer marine biology, but they did offer marine placement, uh, not marine, they did offer um, placement years. So uh, yeah, so that's kind of, it was the idea that I could get this uh, work experience for a year that actually dictated which university I went to and what degree program I did. So it kind of started uh, a few years prior when I applied to uni. I applied for a lot of positions, um, but Bimini was one of them. And I, yeah, I was just so excited when I, when I got it. It was definitely my top choice. So um, I was, yeah, pretty excited, um, especially to be able to work with sharks. So this would, was really my first experience of yeah getting to work with them in any kind of way and getting to see so many species and, and interact with them there's just something i hadn't never had the experience to do so before so and it was a really amazing opportunity to really learn more about a career in research actually and what really research involved and yeah, it was just a great experience all around and really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And the work that they were doing there was really interesting. And there was quite a few different research projects happening that I was involved in. But while I was there, I was learning also about the previous work that had been done. Um, and there was a project done by Kevin Feldheim and others. And this was done a few years before I'd actually started. So it wasn't something I was involved in, but I was learning about it while I was there. And it's actually how they were using uh, genetics to identify natal phylopatry and lemon sharks. So natal phylopatry is where an animal is born, they live their life, they come back to where they were born to give birth to their own pups. And they normally also come back to the same place every time they pup. So in the case of a lemon shark, it's every couple of years. So they were able to do this with the testing the genetics of these individuals to see it's the same individuals coming in caught in the same location. They're testing, they can tell that it's their offspring and siblings are found in these multiple years so um that i hadn't really done any molecular work and i also say was not involved in this genetics project at all but i remember being absolutely fascinated i was like this is the coolest work i've ever heard about in my life and then when i came back to university i was like right genetics is where it's at this is, seems to be the coolest thing i've heard about the entire time i've been at university and um <laughs> And then luckily kind of dived into some molecular work in my final year of university. So even though I wasn't directly involved in it while I was at the Bimini Shark Lab, it was just one of these many things that was really opening my eyes to all of this amazing research that was happening and kind of made me think that's something I want, I really want to be a part of. So yeah, definitely defined where I, where I went afterwards and, and it was just such a great experience. That's so cool, yeah, because, I mean, like, that's the, the whole point of doing a placement, right, is to figure out kind of what it is specifically that you're interested in, because when you start a university, you're so broad, and it's hard to know sort of where you want to go, especially as it's really helpful to have a placement like that, where you're actually out in the field and experiencing what these techniques are going to be like, because that's so different to hearing about it in a lecture. But yeah, I'm I'm so glad that was such a like a formative experience for you and sort of took you down the road of genetics and molecular biology. And of course, your PhD is now kind of focused on, you know, the tiniest, but arguably the most important parts of a shark, which is its DNA. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit for someone who is 
you know, pretty new to the field. What sort of things can we learn by looking at a shark's DNA? Yeah, absolutely. So there's um, so many different things that we can address actually with using a DNA. So it's just to start off, I like to think of DNA as the molecular blueprint of how every organism is, um, what it looks like, how its body works. Um, it can influence, it, it influences and is the cause of everything about you. So it holds so, so much information. Um, and if we can tap into that information, we can learn a lot about these individuals. Um, so just a, f a few different examples that I'd like to highlight as to what we could do and this is by no means an exhaustive list um so yeah i'm asking you to to talk about like a very huge field yeah. of many many different <laughs> factors but <laughs> so just a couple of examples many different avenues yeah so and what <laughs> i also would like to highlight is actually we can use dna to not only learn about a single individual we can learn about a population so maybe a group of individuals individuals over a certain area we can learn about a species um, or groups of species and we can also learn about the ecosystem in general so on an individual level we can identify what the kind of species is um, so particularly for sharks this is really useful in terms of trade because you might get a body part we can't identify what this animal is by looking at it but using its dna we can tell you exactly what species it is so that can be really really useful um, we can actually also learn about the individual's health so we can actually research into its immune genes so again this is all sorts of information we could find about the individual itself um, on a population level um, particularly for sharks, we can use this to classify stocks. So we can know if um, species in different in different areas, well, the same individuals of the same species in different areas, whether they are mixing with each other or whether they're completely closed off from each other. Um, and this could be by distance or this could be because of a physical barrier. Um, there's all sorts of reasons, um, but we can use DNA to find out are these animals mixing um, and do we need to manage them separately or can we manage them as one one group but also for a species level we have a lot of animals that actually look the same um so we can actually use dna to figure out are these different species and um, we can classify groups of animals obviously traditionally this was done by looking at them and taking measurements and describing features whereas now we still do that and that's such important work but we can also add in the genetic element um to identify and quite a lot of species over the years have been reclassified or changed or split up because of looking at their genetics. We can also look at this on an evolutionary time scale as well. So we can use genetics to see how animals have adapted um, and kind of think about the evolutionary time scale and what has changed over this over this period. So yeah, DNA also helps with that. But as I mentioned, we can kind of get information on ecosystem this is more to do with um, an example here would be for diet. So not only can we look at the DNA of a particular individual, we can actually look at the DNA of the individual animals that it's eating. So we could take stomach or fecal samples and we can actually learn, we can get the DNA of those animals as well. Um, and either for species identification to know what they were eating. Um, so we can delve into that in quite a lot more detail as well. And that's actually where I started when I did first started molecular work, I actually um, was doing diet analysis of breeding European storm petrels. So 
did birds for a short while not, not hasn't all been sharks um love a storm petrel <laughs> yeah they're, they're really really awesome um not biased or anything but definitely my favorite bird <laughs> and um <laughs> they're, they're- amazing for people that are listening sorry just like like really really quickly they're like this they're this incredible seabird that travel you know migrate huge distances travel in you know really pretty gnarly conditions as well like i've always seen them in high winds high waves but they're tiny (laughs) they're not very big birds at all yeah they're so cool they're such tiny birds they'll sit in the palm of your hand they're gorgeous little faces and make the coolest noises um if anyone gets the chance to maybe look it up on youtube um the sound that they make is really really bizarre really really unusual um and yeah so uh, a very very cool species um, it was great to do some seabird work for a while um but that's also just to highlight these all of these methods that are molecular methods or dna based methods they're not just for sharks they're literally for all animals or not even animals you can also use it for plants or fungi other living things like all of these techniques can kind of be applied for for everything um so it's not just a field or these questions you can't just ask for certain things it can be applied across all living things on various uh, scales so it's pretty cool yeah absolutely there is there's so much that we can learn you know it just it just boggles my mind that this thing that we can't even see with the human eye can tell us you know, so much about an animal or a plant or, you know, a fungi's life and how they operate and move around the world and how they used to be. And it's kind of like unlocking a secret code or, you know, a secret set of novels or something that tell you about that that animal's life. It's so, so cool. Speaking of cool things, we're now going to move on to your PhD research that you're currently um, you're currently completing, um, and your research looks at population genetics. So, if we think about you know what we've just talked about DNA, you know the field of molecular biology, you know massive massive field with lots and lots of different uh, different uh, disciplines within it, and one of those is population genetics. Um, and just before we kind of get into your specific uh, what you're doing specifically for your PhD, I wondered if we could just quickly explain sort of what population genetics, what does that actually mean? Yeah, of course, yeah. So. Population genetics um, mainly revolves around questions to do with are individuals found in different places connected to each other genetically um, or isolated from each other or what we also call differentiated. So you can tell them apart using their genetic information. Um, So what we often want to know is are they mating and are they mixing these populations between between areas? Obviously, with a lot of shark species, um, not all, but a lot, they do move quite a lot. We have some that are quite resident, but generally we have ones that move around a lot. So for a mobile species, just by looking at them and catching them in certain areas can't really give us information as to where where the kind of boundaries of these groups are, if that makes sense. So tagging information can show us how far how far they're moving but a species might move but it might not actually mate with individuals in another location which means that genetic information isn't being shared and isn't being passed so um 
this is why we kind of want to look at these population level genetics. Um, whereas quite a few of the earlier examples we were talking about were kind of, are they present in an area? What are they eating? That kind of thing. This is now uh, for the species. Where are the boundaries of these groups within the species? Hopefully that makes sense. So um, you get these lack of connection generally in the natural world due to physical geographic features which stop them. So if we think about terrestrial animals, the land animals, if they're on an island, you might have the same animal on multiple islands, um, but they physically can't access each other. So they can't mate and we don't get any genetic mixing, even though they are the same species. Um, it's a little bit less clear in the marine environment um, because as I say, especially for a lot of species, there aren't really these geographical boundaries because there's yeah less there are some forms of boundaries in, in the ocean but but less compared to when we think about um, the terrestrial environment one of the other ways that we can also have um, a lack of mixing and a lack of connection between populations is also by distance so for example if you take the atlantic ocean animals on the east atlantic might be genetically different to those on the west atlantic but then the ones in the middle of the atlantic might be kind of look similar in ways to both of them and it that could just be to where um migration like limits go so they might travel so far mix with them somewhere else and then but they they don't get further um so yeah genetics allows us to investigate this a little bit more we can see which ones are more closely similar to each other's or not um yeah so that's kind of we can ask some more detailed questions within that, but that's generally the rough concept of population level genetics and why we might want to look into those things. Yeah, that 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 makes perfect sense. Um, you explained that beautifully. So you obviously you're you're looking at those kind of questions for your PhD to do with the spur dog, aka the spiny dogfish. Um, and just before we kind of kind of go into like the population genetics of the spur dog and sort of what it is exactly that you do I wondered if we could spend a little bit of time shedding some light on this species because they don't often get talked about uh, all that much um, but they are you know they are a pretty a, a pretty special species let's start off with kind of like what what they look like yeah absolutely um so spur dog is actually quite a small species of shark um and we get them pretty much all across the world they like the more cooler temperatures so we get them more in the temperate areas um, we don't see them in the tropical seas um, they can grow to about two meters in length but generally we don't really see them much bigger than one meter i think that is the the maximum but yeah it, they're generally one about 1.2 would probably be considered uh, a larger ish spur dog um and yeah like most sharks they're very long-lived they're slow growing and they don't have that many young compared compared to bony fish um and one of my actual favorite facts about them which really surprised me when i started working with them is they actually have a really long gestation period so they're pregnant for up to about two years <laughs> um and this is potentially similar to or longer than an elephant and these animals are small right compared to an elephant you can understand why an elephant takes that long to make a baby um and this just completely blew me away when I started working with them. So they, yeah, they're said to have one of the longest gestation periods of any vertebrate out there. So 
um poor female spare dogs <laughs> yes i know bless them <laughs> um and so when they have gone through this really long gestation period they can have anywhere between one to 32 pups at a time um and for those of you that might be a little bit more familiar with sharks and their weird ways um, these animals are what we call ovoviviparous which means that embryos grow inside the uterus and then nourished by an egg um, instead of a placenta and then they will have a live birth so yeah i won't go into shark reproduction too much but it's okay if, it's if so you weird. if you want to go into shark reproduction go back to episode one of the podcast oh, there we go and we we, we talk about that so yeah one of my favorite <laughs> things about sharks i'm like they're so different like there's so much variation yeah so they're really cool and but also to kind of see them and identify them is they actually have venomous spines on the front of both of their dorsal fins as well so um this is where they get their name spiny dogfish from and it's one of the only uh venomous marine animals that we have in in the uk so uh pretty cool um pretty badass little shark yeah completely um but one of the things i wanted to kind of highlight to people is even though, yeah, spur dog don't get spoken about very much. I feel like they're kind of underrated, particularly maybe in the shark world, because they're not these big, impressive um, animals. But actually, a lot of people probably come across them because they traditionally were used for most of our fish and chips back in the day. Um, probably also not unheard of now that you might come across and eat them, um, but not so much as it, as it used to be. Um, and yeah, so they were really, really common. They were commercially fished for a, for a long time. Yeah. But are they are they still quite largely caught as bycatch? Yeah, so um, they there was a ban, a prohibition on retaining spur dog since 2010 in the Northeast Atlantic, so UK and EU. Um, but actually this year they've opened the fishery again. Um, so yeah so up until 2010 they were caught heavily as commercial species since 2010 it, you couldn't keep them but the challenging thing with spur dog is um if you encounter them there's not much way to avoid them um particularly with large nets so trawl nets is one of the most common ways that they're caught these are nets that are dragged along the seafloor um, and they're non-species specific when they're catching fish. And so if there's spur dog in the area, you will catch spur dog. Um, there's sadly not much we can, can do about that. So bycatch was still an issue even when it wasn't targeted or even now, um, even though there is a small quota for them, fisheries, they might not want to catch them because that's not what they're targeting that day, but they will still come across it. So it can still be thought of as a bycatch species so they actually get quite a bad rep with a lot of fishes because um they they're quite annoying to handle especially with those spines you want to avoid them um and when you have quite a lot of them because you can catch quite a lot of them in one go um and you're trying to empty them all out of your net but then you've had to spend all of that time on a species that you can't ca you can't keep and you can't sell so you're discarding it dead or alive um, so a lot of people find it quite wasteful um, and, th and then you haven't been able to catch the species that you actually wanted to catch so um, they tend to get quite a bad rep in the fishing world as well um, because people find them such yeah people find them such a nuisance um, so it, targeted or not fisheries can still be quite an issue for them yeah and what's their um, what's their conservation status at the moment so According to the IUCN red, red list, um, they're vulnerable worldwide, but they are classed as endangered in the Northeast Atlantic. 
Um, so the stock in the Northeast Atlantic was definitely doing worse compared to um, the rest of the world. Yeah, and they had quite significantly declined since the 1970s, likely due to increased fishing pressure and the industrialization of the fishing fleets. Yeah. And of, and of course, like you said, the, the sort of methods of fishing is a factor in why so many of them are caught. But also, linking back to your research, one of their traits is that they tend to aggregate. And that's sort of one aspect that you're researching with your PhD. So can you tell us a little bit more about this? Like, do we, do we know why they aggregate and how big are those aggregations? So the aggregating nature um, has kind of been part of the <laughs> decline, um, I feel, because when these animals aggregate, they can aggregate in extremely large numbers. And we're talking of thousands of individuals come together. So this is when it's unfortunate. And as I say, it's very difficult for a fisher to avoid them if they're in the area, because if they pass the net through, there are many spur dog and they'll just get an entire net full of spur dog. So if you can't sell any of those individuals, that's very, very inconvenient for your day. Um, but yeah, and with spur dog, because they were actually a commercially important species, they're actually one of the most well-studied elasmobranchs compared to many others across the globe. But we still actually have very limited information on their aggregating behaviour in terms of the drivers and why they are together. Um, and also in combination in terms of leading to my work is we don't have that much genetic information for them either. So... One of the, so I, for my PhD and for my Save Our Seas funded project, um, I'm looking at these spur dog aggregations and I want to know a little bit more about the genetic composition of these aggregations. And the reason why I'm looking at that, um, because I guess to start off with, um, when we think about sharks that group together, there are many other species of shark that school and aggregate. Um, and if you're thinking about a, a mobile shark and they form these aggregations, I would assume that these animals are probably not related to each other. <laughs> but some previous work by James Thorburn and others, um, also at the University of Aberdeen, um, he was also studying spur dog and was looking at the population genetics. And he had some samples from a single catch and his data indicated that there might be some full siblings. Um, so this wasn't common across the other groups that he sampled, but there was just one group um, that potentially had four siblings. So that was really kind of unusual and unexpected. But at the time in the methodology that was used, we couldn't say which individuals might be related to each other. And we couldn't say really, it came up as four siblings, but we couldn't really trust that it might be an actual truthful sibling relationship and we don't know which ones were it was just kind of how the analysis presented was like a proportion of this group is related it's kind of what would come out but genetic techniques um advance very very rapidly so even in a few years the what we can do with this information changes quite dramatically and that's kind of where i came in is we had better we have better techniques now and we were still we kind of had like a little hint to there might be um relatives uh, between spur dogs that were caught together but we didn't really we didn't really know any more and we kind of still had a lot of questions relating to this um so i wanted to delve into this further um a few years ago in 2015 there was a rare event which is 
also enabled my PhD work to happen. So off the coast of the Isles of Scilly, so this is down on the southwest of the UK, um, there was a bycatch event, a spur dog, in very large numbers. So this was estimated to be a 10 ton catch in a single net. Wow. Um, Ooh, okay. And yeah, it's that's a lot. It's a lot. So you can see the scale of um, that happens when you get these aggregating animals. There are so many together in one go and you have the potential to remove so many um, in what in just one net. But for those poor boats, they weren't hoping to, they didn't want to get any spur dog that day. And they had so many that they physically couldn't move the net. So they couldn't release the net. They couldn't release any of the animals out because it was so big. They couldn't pull it onto the boat. Um, they actually couldn't even move the boat. So they were kind of stuck and they had to get towed back to shore. And because they were towed back with the whole net full of all of these sharks, um, they were landed. And this was at the time where you weren't allowed to land these animals, but they were give, due to the um, extenuating circumstances that they found themselves in, this was allowed and um, all of these sharks were actually collected by CFAS, which is the Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Aquaculture Science here in the UK, um, and collected for scientific purposes instead. So this became a really unusual opportunity to study an aggregation because I think one of the reasons we are limited in that aggregation knowledge is we don't have access to a whole aggregation you know, to actually find out information about them. And then this just random event has allowed all of the, so many scientists to gain access to these samples. So um, all of, we did a mass dissection of these animals and literally every single part of this animal was taken to somewhere around the world to a different research group to learn more about spur dog. Um, and for me, I was able to take a tissue sample from all of them, which is what we need for looking at our DNA. So we can so yeah, so we so we had all of these um individuals um that we know were caught in the same sampling event. So this has kind of given us a chance to look into the genetic composition of these animals on a larger scale than has ever been done before, because for previous work, you kind of might get like 10, if you're lucky, maybe 20 samples from a sing single catch, and then we'd have multiple of those and we'd compare them to each other in our population genetic level research but um actually was able to obtain 656 samples and this was only a, a estimated to be one fifth of the catch so i don't have samples from every individual that was caught and obviously in terms of the aggregation there are probably individuals that didn't end up in the net. You know, there might have been individuals a part of that aggregation that, that weren't caught. So we don't have every single individual, but we have a pretty good sample size compared to most genetic research when we normally deal with a few tens. Um, yeah, at most. I would say that's that's a that's a huge. That must have taken a long time <laughs> to analyze as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. I will say I haven't actually been able to analyze all 650 um, samples. But, <laughs> That's understandable, yeah. But they are, they are there and it's something that we may get to be able to do in the future and complete the analyses for, for all of them. Um, so one of the aspects I wanted to look at is relatedness. So the fact that James's work suggested, oh, that there could be related individuals that are together. Um, so this is one of the main questions I had for this work and to delve into with these samples from the aggregation. 
Um, and one of the reasons why I want to know this is because if there were related individuals in this really large groups, does that mean that these groups as a whole, or maybe smaller groups that form a large group, could have actually been together their whole lives? I think a lot of people, I think the assumption was that these groups form. Um, so maybe, we don't know why, maybe around feeding, maybe around mating, maybe due to environmental conditions. But at least my understanding is a lot of people think that it's not particularly long lasting. Um, I don't know what scale we're talking on, to be honest, but um, the idea that you could find siblings, does that mean that these siblings have stayed together their, their entire life? And then we're catching them in these aggregations. So if we didn't find siblings, then that's probably the assumption that we would have expected. If we would find siblings, maybe it would mean that this could indicate that there's something a bit more to these groups. Um, and they might be a bit more long lasting. Because um, if you would, you would expect maybe relatives if you were testing individuals at maybe a nursery site um, or for a highly resident species, you know, that that wouldn't be, it's not like you can't find related individuals for sharks, but um, it's just these kind of more mobile species that's a little bit more um, surprising. Um, so that's kind of how the project came about. Um, it was, yeah, it kind of really fell with the timing of just the samples that were available. Um, and that's kind of why we wanted to look into this. Um, but I can tell you that for the part of, I'm not finished entirely on this project, but um, so far I have actually found quite a lot of relatives. Um, and we found a combination of half siblings, first cousins and half first cousins. Um, so there's a, a range and a variety of levels of relatedness. Um, and they're also not just pairs, so we don't just get a half sibling here, a half sibling pair there, a half sibling pair there. Um, we're actually getting like little family clusters. So I have individuals, for example, I have one individual that's related to 12 individuals in that aggregation. Um, so we're definitely seeing some clustering more than I uh, was expecting. <laughs> um, so it's been quite cool. I'm still delving into the analyses in more detail and trying to yeah piece together quite what this might infer for the group but as a first step um it's looking quite exciting or at least i think it is that's really exciting no that is really exciting like i love it when uh you get surprises from science because that's what it's all about right you've just got a question you don't really know what the answer is going to be um and this is maybe, this is kind of like a curveball question, so feel free not to answer it. Um, but what if, you know, if we are finding related individuals hanging out together, is there like any advantage of the animals doing that? Um, I haven't actually thought about it that way. That's a really good question. I'm, I'm not entirely sure evolutionary, if there'd be that much advantage. Um, I'm not entirely sure if they're even like actively choosing to be with a relative. Uh, my theory, um, so by no means is this is proven at all, um, my current thoughts are that they're probably, you know, spend some time in a kind of nursery area, pupping area, 
those that when they get to a certain size they're then probably leaving that area and those that are a similar size to them are potentially likely their siblings and i think it's then those that have been kind of spend their early years together similar kind of size together they're then continuing to to be together and i think then it's just chance that their siblings so they could be spending their life with similar aged similar sized animals from the same nursery site that happen to not be related to them but you also might be getting ones that are and also if you if there is um if there is natal phylopatry for spur dog that would explain that you'd for example and in you'd have a, a mother having birth to the pups but then her siblings would also be going to the same place to pup which means that one lost springs would be near the other one's cousins and things like that. So that's where this is where my mind is kind of going um, with what the possible explanation for for this occurring. But yeah, this, uh, there's still a lot of unknowns. Classic with science is you have all these questions and the answers to your questions provide more questions. Um, yeah um so you're kind of you're getting a tiny bit of a piece of the puzzle and then you get that little nugget of information and then you're like oh well there's now 10 other questions that we have to try and understand this better so um more questions yeah, yeah it's never <laughs> end. that's what i love about science though um i think especially because of the time that we're in and you know the the sort of there's that very there's that need to find the answers to these questions, you know, sometimes relatively quickly now. But that's how science started in the beginning. It's just kind of like, I wonder why this does what it does and then kind of like branches out from there. But I think that's that's really cool and um, like a really, really exciting finding potentially with your thesis, which is which is very cool. I, I very much look forward to, to seeing kind of like what comes out of that. I just wanted to, just before we kind of bring the episode to a close, I wanted to spend a little bit of time sort of talking about like the conservation implications because we've talked a lot about genetics in this episode um, and particularly concepts like connectivity and, you know, diversity and relatedness. Um, And I just wonder, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but why, why is this important to understand from like a conservation perspective? So one of the reasons we want to, understand um the extent of related individuals within aggregations because if we had whole family groups traveling together which could also be caught together um, these family groups could have what we call adaptive traits Um, and if they're caught that adaptive trait won't get a chance to integrate into the wider population so the issues with removing families is more of a kind of um, on an adaptation and kind of evolutionary impact um, because it reduces the chance for these selective adaptations which might be really beneficial for a species to be removed um, because you end up starting with if one person's got a good genetic mutation which gives a good adaptive trait um, you're going to pass it on to your offspring right and so your initial when this mutation first comes about initially you're finding it in these related family groups and it takes a lot of generations for it to mix wider into the population so if you are removing a family group if they have any um of these kind of good mutations 
you're you're not allowing that to be passed on to elsewhere um so yeah so the issues with that could come from uh having relatives in groups are generally on a kind of adaptation scale but in addition to obviously removing the num the number of individuals from, from the population but as i say they have kind of opened the, the fishery now to a limited extent so it has indicated that the population has been recovering and that could be possible but on a why we want to know about the genetics in a bit more broader sense um in the connectivity is as kind of mentioned before particularly for sharks the kind of main application of that is understanding stocks and if we understand the stock we can then apply the best management and conservation practices to that so for example if we have two different stocks say stock a and stock b if stock a is depleted so there's less individuals and we have a healthy stock in stock b we need to know if they're mixing because if they're not mixing stock b can't help stock a keep its numbers up and it can't pass on its kind of genetics and it won't have any mixing to increase the the numbers in that area so that has pretty big conservation implications because if we treated them as one group the conservation measures they're going to need different conservation and management if we have one really healthy low high population stock and one low population stock because if it was one group you would assume that the healthy lot could you could help the the ones with not many numbers left and that might not be the case so yeah particularly for fisheries which is one of the most applicable kind of managements for shark this is quite key to understand we can also find um mentioned before when we were talking earlier about identifying different um species uh, with the genetics and actually for spur dog there is a subspecies called the north pacific spiny dogfish which is found in the north pacific and it was actually through uh, looking at the genetics it was deemed a different species in 2010 um, compared to all the other spur dog um, around the rest of the world so again that is um, quite a big thing for management that you need to know that actually this is a different species and actually they might have different life history traits and they might be affected differently um, so it's not only about identifying the stocks it's identifying are these um, actually the same species or not across the world mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and thinking about um, just going back to your adaptive traits just real quick. Um, so it's kind of like thinking of how to describe it. It's like if you had so say, you know, we've we've got climate change um, you've generally got global warming. And so you might have groups of, of, of families who have a trait that allows them to deal better with warmer conditions. And if you are taking them out of that population then that adaptive trait doesn't get the chance to spread um, and so you then are left with a population that potentially can't adapt to warming seas if that makes sense so that's kind of like the longer term connotations I don't know if I describe that <laughs> yeah no that is absolutely perfectly described in terms of yeah as a hypothetical situation that is what we're looking at yeah. oh man it's so it's so fascinating and there's so many kind of like little tangents that I could that I could take us on and go down but I'll not do that um, <laughs> uh, but it has been an absolute pleasure to sort of dive into the world of you know genetics DNA spur dogs with you um, and I'm sure all the listeners will be the same as me and being really excited and sort of following where your work goes. Um, and with that in mind, uh, you know, what what comes next for you? I imimagine probably a lot of writing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also, you know, 
where can people uh, follow your work? So um, I have a year left of my PhD, so I'm going to have a very bu busy year ahead of me. Um, and the work that I've specific specifically spoken about um, in this podcast, um, I'm actually wrapping up now and I do actually hope to submit to publish it later this year. Um, yeah, and but yeah, but Will, as you say, I'm going to have a, a busy year doing lots of writing and lots of finishing up on my other projects. Um, but in terms of following the work, um, you can find me on Twitter and at finella.wood. Um, and so, yeah, when publications come out and any anything particularly exciting, um, I'm sure I'll be posting about on there. Um, but you can also find out more about the project on the Save Our Seeds Foundation website as well, um, particularly about the work that we've spoken about today. Um, and then beyond the PhD, I am not sure yet, but I'm hoping it will would be amazing if it could still be something molecular and even better if it could be um, continuing the work to help sharks. But we shall see. And a holiday. What it brings. Oh yeah, a holiday. That's definitely very high on the cards. <laughs> yeah. A nice rest. Yes, yes. So yeah, most people's plans post PhD, it's always about um, where you're going on holiday afterwards tends to be the biggest discussion point. <laughs> yeah, I never, I, I went straight into a job and I would not recommend doing that. I'm always like, please make sure that you take your, take your mental break. But yeah, but that's, that's fantastic. We'll, we'll link to everything in the show notes as we always do. Um, and you'll be able to find uh find all the details on how to find out more about Fenella's project and also um, Fenella herself uh, down there. So make sure that you do that. Um, and finally, we do have one more question, if, if you'll humour us for just another minute. Um, and that is... And, and it doesn't have to be a spear dog. A lot of people think when I ask this question that they have to be their study species. You don't. Um, but if you could be any species of shark, ray or skate in the world, what would you be and why? Um, so I think you're going to like the answer to this one, Isla, because I would like to be a basking shark. Ah, yeah! <laughs> um, and well, it's one of my favourite species of sharks. So, you know, that's always a win. Um, so I do agree with you on that front. Um, but they just seem very chilled out and they eat a lot and they hang out in groups and they just seem to, you know, I, yeah, I, I like, I just love them. And then, and then they're just so surprising, incredible when they're like kind of slow and chilled and then they're just like breach. And you're like, well, you didn't know you had that in you. So I just think they're such cool animals. So, yeah. If I was going to be a shark, I would like to be as amazing as a basking shark is. Ah, oh, you've made my day with that answer. <laughs> I love representation for basking sharks, and yeah, they seem to live a, a very, a very lovely and a very placid existence. No, that was a that was a great answer, and and with that, I will bring it to a close. But Fenella, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and chat all about your your super fascinating research. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. The World of Sharks podcast is brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Jamie Silva. And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. 
A enormous thank you to Fenella for coming on the podcast and teaching us all about your work and the wonderful world of the spur dog. You can follow her over on Twitter. She is at Fenella underscore wood. And thank you at home for listening. If you like this episode, it would be awesome if you could just drop us a rating and a review on your podcast app. We love hearing from you. It helps us improve and helps us spread the word about how amazing sharks are and who doesn't want that. If you have any topics you want covered or you just want to say hi, you can also get in touch by emailing Isla at SaveOurSeas.com. And you can find out more about the Save Our Seas Foundation and the work that we do by heading to www.saveourseas.com or following us on social media. We are at Save Our Seas on Twitter and at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we will see you next time.